After the explosive car crash of 1967's weekend, Jean-Luc Godard took a hard swerve to the left. His cinema, which followed on from the lead-up to 68 and the years after it, engaged in a form of political Marxist guerrilla warfare with the French and global establishment. Godard would collaborate with uh, Jean-Pierre Gorion um, on a series of films which tackled the political crises and cinematic follies of Hollywood cinema. They were going to make a series of politically charged, difficult, quite didactic films together, which we are going to look at today in part two of our Godard special. So this is Godard Redux. This is Godard collaborating. This is Godard, not Godard the auteur. This is Godard trying to behead himself. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, joining me this week to talk through a handful of these quite complicated films mm-hmm. is Ralph Pritchard as ever. My hey. Gorin. No, you're more Godard. Maybe I'm more Gorin. Don't put yourself down. <laughs> I'm going to put myself down, literally with a, with a needle. Um, yeah. So, so hear me up. We last week, obviously, or well, the week before, we looked at Godard's probably most, probably most iconic films. Is the yeah. films that make him the films that we still talk about when we talk about Godard. We talk about Breathless. We talk about uh, Weekend. We talk about Père Lafou. This is a period of Godard, which is. Not even on the film circuit. This is like academic interest only for the most part, I would say. And people talk kind of disparagingly maybe about Godard's Marxist period or his revolutionary turn. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not as simple as Godard reaching 68 and then making political films because as we talked about last time, he was already mobilising the weaponry. He was already uh, deconstructing the kind of the, the format of Hollywood cinema before then, but this was a kind of uh, a tone change. Um, so let's, yeah, kind of talk me through how you received these films, I guess, because we were both saying this was a, it was a difficult week of viewing, right? It was a very difficult week of viewing. We frequently exchanged messages, pained messages. Um, we charged ourselves with three viewings, British Sounds, uh, also called See You at Mao, uh, Le Vendère, Le Vendette, Wind from the East, mm. and Tout va bien, Everything's Fine. Um, these films stretch across the period of uh, Godard's collaboration with the Jugo Vertov group, mm-hmm. which attempted to make Brechtian cinema espousing Marxist ideology um, through a kind of horizontal collaborative process. Um, and it was very much in response to the 68 moment, which... Mm-hmm as we know, was quite a big deal for French artists and intellectuals. Um, but yeah, uh, <clears throat> British Sounds is, is made in, in Britain and is, is in English. In this uh, language. Wind from the East, um, it's hard to recall details from it because it's so <laughs> boring and awful. Um, um, but it is, it's, it's, um, it's, um, it's, um, it's a sort of got a, West, a spaghetti Western kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, and then Tuva Bien is a slightly higher budget um, film looking at the idea of strike and mm. um, La Grève, La Grève, and yeah. starring um, Yves Montand and Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda in a in a lo- mostly English speaking role. Um, she she does interact with the workers of the factory in French. It's yeah, because I feel like Tuva Bien is 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 the high point of these films. I mean, again, struggle in Italy. Uh, 
uh, Rosa and Vladimir, Vladimir and Rosa. Um, mm. Other there are other films where we didn't really engage with. I've seen bits of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen bits of them. Um, which kind of compromises Sigvertov moment? Mm-hmm. Um, a very conscious attempt to make a Marxist cinema yeah. work um, to continue some of his his techniques of the sixties, which was to use tropes from Hollywood of the the Hollywood Moss film complex, as mm-hmm. you, as he put it, um, and to use those invert those tropes from that cinema. Um, and to deconstruct them and look at them a bit more closely, you know, uh, you talked about women from the east, and maybe it's easy to start with one of these because yeah. it's it is the most difficult. It is in fifty percent a kind of cowboy film seen through the lens of French provincial aesthetics in a way, and then it's fifty percent a kind of didactic revolutionary film which quotes heavily from Marx and Engels and other. Uh, Theoreticians. Um, yeah, let's talk about these tropes. So th- you yeah. mentioned Hollywood Moz film. Obviously, Moz film is um, Soviet uh, the Soviet production. cinema production uh, organ, and Hollywood is a place in LA where they make films. Out uh, of it, yeah. Um, and they <laughs> they don't see culturally they're quite opposed, you know, uh, politically opposed. They're quite opposed, and 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 also culturally, but they they both have kind of um hegemony within mm. the places they are yeah. the yeah, places yeah. the location and they're formulaic and they have formulas and they are essentially trying to entertain and and um and grip their audience and, yeah. and there is an ideology that a sort of an implicit ideology which ideology. is the dominant ideology of yeah. the situation so there are these seven um peter wallen who's a who made a film with tilda swinton once wasn't very good that's um, a, that's definitely like mark in the negative <laughs> column uh, generally on this podcast because this is a primarily a film podcast but secondarily a kind of anti-swinton podcast. yeah we we attempt to undermine swinton's um hegemony hegemony in the kind of contemporary yeah, art world absolutely um, she's so annoying but yeah um, peter, peter wallen who wrote peter wallen who, who who wrote this essay um about wind from the east specifically and about this idea of counter cinema which god are pursued um Narrative transitivity, um, which essentially means one thing following on from another, um, was undermined by Godard's narrative intransitivity, um, where basically um, it's, it's non-linear, just full of digressions. Yeah. Things just get interrupted. Um, identification versus estrangement. So this was basically the idea that you try and encourage emotional involvement with characters. Um, was undermined by Godard um, just constantly distancing you from any kind of individual personal story and just kind of in a Brechtian way kind of positioning people in their roles within society rather than as emotional rounded human beings Um, transparency versus foregrounding which was the idea of um, language um, essentially, this is a bit more interesting, this one, because it's mm. about making the mechanics of the film visible. So he does a lot of stuff about, like in Tout Bien, there's a bit at the end where there's a voiceover that says, this is now an ending, yeah. you know, and films sometimes end this way and sometimes they end that way. And, you yeah. know, and it, then- it's self-aware of itself as a, a mechanical process. It's self-aware of the production of film. So mm. again, these films from this era, we often see, you know, Wind from the East, uh, makeup teams applying makeup to the actors, 
bits of camera equipment, the boom mic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see the production equipment is laying bare the the kind of superstructure of film. Mm-hmm. Literally, the mechanics of how a film is made is is on display. So that's yeah. one thing he's he's breaking that again, breaking fourth wall in exactly. a way, um, in a way that, that that foregrounds the fact that you are watching a film, and a yeah. film is a constructed thing. That's what he's saying. This is a construction. This is a fabrication. It's not a magic spell, or he's trying to dispel the magic spell. He's saying this is actually a series of confrontations and power dynamics and uh, financial arrangements. You know, we see it in. Um, to kind of fast forward too far beyond, there's a scene where we see the checks being written that will make the film. Yes. You know, yeah. They're signing and it's a scenography. Very materialist extras, analysis of the whole Very thing. materialist analysis. And you see these checks being written. It's uh, it's quite a good scene. It's, you know, lasts for maybe a minute and a half, two minutes where somebody's just signing off these checks for various amounts of money that mean nothing to me because they're in francs in the mm. 60s. So I don't know if it's a lot or not, but yeah. Um, so the other, the fourth concept is single diegesis versus multiple diegesis. So the idea that in a Hollywood film, everything shown belongs to the same world, whereas he creates multiple different worlds. Again, that's actually a more interesting subversion. I'm up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, he does it already in Le Met Pre. He has films within a film. Yep. Um, in Weekend, characters from different historical eras enter and stuff. I mean, yeah. we're talking a bit about Weekend and how Weekend... Well, I think we, we did talk about Weekend in our previous podcast yeah. and how it kind of gestures towards this era and i would say it does so most in the areas where it's flawed but we can we can we can contest that further <laughs> um number five closure versus aperture a self-contained object i'm quoting woolen here um self-contained object harmonized with its own bounds versus an open endless overspill intertextuality illusion quotation parody so this is something that Godot is very familiar with he constantly uh, through his 60s films uses sampling uses kind of tribute he has in a band apart people kind of playing you know pretending to be in johnny guitar by nicholas ray you know various hollywood films that's something that you know that's really nothing new um number six pleasure versus unpleasure <laughs> this is entertainment aiming to satisfy the spectator versus provocation aiming to dissatisfy and change the spectator i'm afraid this week we have experienced unpleasure pleasure so much unpleasure <laughs> Is that all seven? Uh, no, the number seven um, is... Uh, oh, just one thing about unpleasure. In The Wind from the East, the struggle against the bourgeois notion of representation, in quotes, mm-hmm. certainly does not rule out the presence of fantasy. Fantasy of shooting the Union delegate, fantasies of killing shoppers in a supermarket. Yep. Um, so there is um, some element of fantasy and desire. Uh, number seven, fiction versus reality. Actors wearing makeup, acting a story versus real life, the breakdown of representation. And this is an interesting point um, that I hadn't thought of, uh, that in Viva Savi, mm-hmm. you see the first germ of this particular kind of filmmaking, in my opinion, where um, Anna Karina's character decides to become a prostitute. Yeah. And as that, see, as that section of the film begins, there's a montage of her going about her business and you have these statistics on the voiceover mm. saying um, what, basically relating to the sex work industry yeah um and this is a kind of yeah a a materialist comment on what's going on in the yeah him him drawing together different sources different source materials that compromise the film with the political urgency right like yeah exactly because you know one thing that he he's doing with these is he's surfacing the like i said the production of the films and the conditions of the production of the films um these are made objects and obviously the way woolen puts it in his article is that conventional Hollywood film 
is casting a spell over the viewer. It is the opiate of the masses in a kind of more, he doesn't use that terminology, but it's basically the same conclusion. It's the opiate of the masses. Um, it is casting a spell which is designed to kind of lead you into a kind of happy stupor. You are being mm. entertained. You are identifying with characters. You are, you are understanding and comprehending the plot and its development, and you're getting a kind of resolution at the end. Mm. In contrast, what Godard and Gorin set out to do with these films is to kind of disrupt that um to make it yeah unpleasurable um you know to to kind of make it uncomfortable to to expose the foundations of of the building well that's what's said about satire isn't it it's supposed to comfort mm. the the something oh god I can't remember. <laughs> oh, oh, we're getting we're getting into some it's supposed <laughs> to too academic dis, dis, discomfort the comfortable and comfort the discomfort i don't know, something I like don't that. know. it sounds good though um yeah, and so with these films, he is making you uncomfortable. He is using digressions. He is using um, unsynchronized audio. A character will be talking, but you can't. You can see their mouth moving, but you can't hear the audio. Then suddenly, mm. the audio will kick in from another source. You get statistics. He's obsessed with statistics. There's a character in Two Fabian, a union delegate who addresses the camera directly. Um, it's almost like a. UFC or boxing, you know, kind of pre-bout section where, you know, the the cameras are in front of the fighters and they're performing in front of the cameras. It's almost that kind of energy. And it's this, this uh, funny enough, this union delegate is talking off a script. So he's literally mm -hmm. reading off a script. He's making eye contact with the camera and reading off his scripts. And he's giving lots of stats. Later on, this is the whole, the, the function of contradiction and um, ambivalence in these films. is that Someone else is railing against the union delegate's obsession with statistics and figures. Mm -hmm. That's something Godard himself did right yeah, yeah. and this is one of the times in a very keeler-esque way mm, absolutely <laughs> barking these Silly statistics into your brain um <laughs> and this is there's a there's a and it, he's kind of self-critical i think Godard, because he often criticizes it appears to criticize things which he himself has done or will do mm. in um uh to vbm there's a character who says who claims you know all you do is make films of buildings um, you know, sort of housing estates. Mm. Uh, and that's something that Godard would do with a film called Number Two, which was a study, a documentary, as it were, of a family living in a housing estate mm. in, I think it's Marseille. Um, I'll say Marseille, it'll stick. So he's aware of the contradictions. He's embracing them, which is his use of trope. His his ability to kind of use a trope allows him to do the things he criticises, otherwise there would be no film. Yeah. The only, in the logic of Godard, the most appropriate film would be a black screen. Even then, that kind of signifies it's like Mad Magazine shit. But, mm. it, you know, it, in order to deconstruct, he needs to use the tools of the master almost. And we talked about this last week. I mean, it's why, you know, I mean, let's talk about British Sounds because British Sounds is obviously the most immediately interesting because it is a film about the UK in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, you think it might be a film about the counterculture because often the thumbnail that's used for this film is a British flag with a fist punching through it. True. Yeah. And you think, okay, this might be a film about, I don't know, the Stones or Beatlemania or whatever. It might be about, but it's not. It, it, a good third of the film is a tracking shot of a production facility in a, in a, uh, in a, uh, I guess, like a Ford workshop or something. It's yeah. not Ford, because uh, it's American. It would be like Vauxhall or whatever the fuck. So I think it's probably the most um, 
structural of these films in mm. that like each section is very strongly themed and the concept is quite simple so there is yep. this extracts from i believe the communist manifesto being read over this footage from this Vauxhall factory and or bits of angle as well the angles yeah. yeah um and the kind of cacophony of sounds kind of jutting into each other there are this this is repetition of these historical dates um there is a, a great quote well there's a quote there's a quote that i um i think we should probably bring up now um, television and film this is a voiceover that's read out I don't know who wrote it but I assume Godot or one of his mates um, television and films do not record moments of reality but simply dialectics areas of contradiction let us illuminate these contradictions with the blinding light of class struggle and I think that really gets to the heart of Godard's absolutely misguided mission um, with the, all these films which is the idea you know, if we could just illuminate this thing, if we could just use art, effect, art, use art effectively with our incredible aesthetics, because almost every shot in these films is like a very nice shot. They're very well filmed. Often the sound is quite nice. They just have this absolute resistance to watching because they just, the, as we've discussed earlier, they subvert all of these yeah. really fucking useful conventions of filmmaking <laughs> yeah. that actually make you give a shit about what's going mm. on on screen. Yeah, it's you, really... you have no skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. And he's actively, it's, it's you know, he's actively, it's Water of the Duck's back, he's actively pushing you away. Mm. And, the you know, the, the argument there, it would be Woolen's argument, it would be many other people's argument, is that, Godard is trying to remind you this is a film. That's mm -hmm. the most important thing. He doesn't want you to get invested. He doesn't want you to be involved in the characters' lives because then you forget that it's a film. Yeah. And really, he's teaching you a lesson through about... Uh, he's No, he's teaching you a lesson through dialectics and semiotics. So yeah. The film is reducible to... is a type of language. It's a visual language. It's constructed. Um, and if you can construct a language, then... In order, you have to learn to read it if you want to have a revolutionary cinema. And the only way to learn to read it is to break it down like a lesson into uh, parts of sentences, parts of speech. Um, you know, the, the Hollywood cinema is the apex of cinema as language, but it's such a fluent language that you are not aware mm. that you are being talked to through the film. You know, it's like uh, they live. It's it's <laughs> fucking John Carpenter shit, really. It's remove your sunglasses and read obey yeah and it kind of is that because he's saying well actually so i'm going to make it a language but i'm going to make it a chaotic child's language babble i'm going to make it scrawling on the wall mm. which is why it's so kind of like irritating in a way this thing when we criticize god at this point like we have mad respect for god obviously oh yeah but One in of his the best face, to ever do it. he is almost too successful at doing what he out to do well he just it's almost like he got bored of being good at making films imagine <laughs> i mean really i do think that and i yeah. think it's a very yeah. strange phenomenon and i think also he felt honestly i've seen a lot of people i'm gonna go a bit sincere now like i've uh -oh. seen people do this like talented artists who kind of become overwhelmed their sort of faculties of empathy like swell up in the face of like whatever political adversity it is at that moment you know mm -hmm. coronavirus or brexit or whatever um and they and they become kind of like very worthy and moral and moralizing I use my art and they think yeah and i yeah. think oh yeah. i the uh, you know in a way it comes from a, like an insecurity right yeah. like it's it's not enough for me to just indulge myself i have to like be doing good or whatever um but yeah it's a very 
Um, it's somewhat relatable because, you know, I can imagine in the post-68 era, things felt politically urgent. Mm. Looking back on 68, it seems like people had it pretty good then. And yeah. like now it's probably more urgent, but still there is a need for art. Yeah, <laughs> still there is a need to do sex. things that are not politically useful um, creatively yeah. because we're human. Um, so, yeah, it is sort of frustrating to see someone like... Um, who's who's clearly demonstrated themselves to be an incredible artist and has accrued yeah. funds because of that just making these incredibly didactic works that mm. are just like hammering home a message that is just not going anywhere no because it's not comprehensible to if if his objective was to make a revolutionary cinema that was accessible to the people this there is um, um, imagine trying to you're a union rep you know, on the shop floor, mm. or you're trying to convince someone to vote Labour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, vote Even Ken Loach is better for Ken this. Lo exactly. At least he tells stories. But you know, to you know, to to seek narrative and to seek identification with a work of art or anything is a literal. Gen it's genetically encoded for fuck's sake. It is literally yeah. something we seek from the world to look at the chaos of the world and to seek some sort of order from it. You can you can reorder that, which is maybe what Eisenstein did in a way. Made a revolutionary cinema that was. Um, engaging and active and had a story and protagonists that you could follow and it, but it was not a Hollywood film and it was not telling the story of the bosses what Godard has made is just to most people complete insane junk because it is no, no, no this is not the film that will lead a revolutionary struggle it's a film that might make you feel better like Godard personally I think he he, he had a crisis after 68 and he's I mean, like, he was cleansing his own conscience I think he probably was because he, you know, he was known and maybe cleansing the fact that his film had always been reliant in some way on tropes yeah, like he hadn't created, a, he hadn't been Bresson, and Bresson, well, even to an extent, Bresson used tropes, but no, but Bresson had a methodology. Had a methodology. Bresson right. reinvented cinema for himself Absolutely. and did it that way. Right. Yeah, and whereas Godard kind of had always used tropes. Tropes had always been a grounding principle for his films. Yeah, Mapri is actually the least, even though it's a hyper melodrama, is actually the least. Um, uh, critiqueable on those grounds, I think yeah, it's the true. one that kind of stands apart in a way, but. He'd always used. Um, he'd always used because it's quite self-reflexive. Quite self-reflexive, yeah. So he'd he'd always used tropes, and maybe in a way he was like, you know, the things that I was trying to dismantle, I wasn't successful at dismantling. So he doubled down. It's like, okay, if I I need to dismantle more, I need to pull these things a bit apart a bit more. So this period of filmmaking is really interesting because you can kind of see the personal crisis he was going through. I yeah. don't think I don't think at any point this would have stuck if Godard then only would have made films like British Sounds. He'd become an irrelevant filmmaker. Mm. I think the fact that he kind of you know, we'll see this in our next uh, our next Godard episode. He did not continue making films like this. He <laughs> learned interesting lessons from it. Yeah. Um, but he didn't carry on making his films because to what end? Like, yeah. it's almost like he was waiting for, you know, if, if Godard had been commissioned by like the, the, the coal, coal board in the UK to make a film, that would have been really interesting. Remember, his first film was about a concrete mine. Right. Um, in 54, it. he made a documentary, borrowed a camera off his uncle, I think, made a film about a concrete... Um, concrete factory in a, the building of a dam so his mm. first impulse was to film kind of the it, but it was almost a commission from the dam it was mm. like the boss's commission in a way but i feel like he's yeah expunging his conscience a little bit i don't know They're, yeah yeah i mean i guess i just want to go into a few details of british sounds because it's the only film i wrote notes about i guess it was at That's the start at the start of my film of my goddard marxism uh, viewing but, journey and i, I was so full of pep and genius, enthusiasm so. but yeah um there's a bit about, he has a sort of rather tokenistic bit about gender politics where a naked woman walks in and out of a room <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's a voiceover of, 
some woman talking about how it's difficult to be but you're just looking at these bum and breasts just she's kind of a very attractive woman pop you know bob, in like a very english house around. which is quite weird yeah got a... um and then there's this really cringe bit with this this kind of um dowdy news reader who's he starts off saying the workers have it easy and really they should be uh, working they should be wor- earning less and working more you know sort of saying these mm. kind of structural things and then he basically starts saying that like black people should be executed like he sort yeah. of goes he sort of he's sort of saying like oh god i was trying to say like this is the this is the anti-worker politics taken to its logical conclusion mm. it's fascism it's and he's like, also a standing you know, kind eugenics. of that, that reader is Suppose they're standing for the BBC, the voice of the BBC, exactly, or the voice yeah, of the, the establishment. Yeah, this is what they're really saying. It's cringe though because he doesn't really understand how power works when he does this. Because he doesn't understand that, like the way what we've learned over the last few decades, which is that like capitalism absolutely ador- absorbs all kinds of identity-based contradictions mm. and re and mutates and reformulates it, yeah. reconstitutes itself um, in order to not seem absurd. So this attempt to make capitalism seem absurd by like taking it to its in quotes logical conclusion of like of like yeah. fascism there, is there, not actually there accurate. is no logical conclusion for capitalism because it's the ultimate chameleon. Yeah, yeah, capitalism yeah. doesn't care. Like capitalism is not um, is not um, fascist. It 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 it, beha- it has to behave fascistly in order to survive. If that's the flavor of the day. If that's the flavor yeah. of the day, but it doesn't it doesn't have like an emotional commitment to anything. Capitalism. It's just. It's just an ideology f- purely based on profitability and growth. Um, so the idea, yeah, the idea that it sort of logically, logically kind of becomes this very, this more visibly evil eugenicist um, thing mm. that is communicated by the yeah, news that's, really that's just seems kind of cringe. Neoliberalism, as it were, like the mutation of, of capitalism in yeah, the yeah, yeah. UK society, American society, you know, that's not where it is going. Um, I think he misunderstands the, the UK context as well. Yes, he does. Uh, massively, because he's not aware of the unique class politics of the UK. Yeah, exactly. and he doesn't gr- foreground the most important thing, which is not its not what you say, which is the most important thing to Gauzard in French cinema, is what you say. You know, he's a semiotician. Semiotics is not important in the UK. It's irrelevant mm. almost. It's where you're saying from. What do you mean by from. he's a semiotician? Like what? Because he's so interested in semiotics. He's so interested in you know language as film. Yeah. Um, he <clears throat> frequently identified as a semiotician. He you know when we look at him, he's deconstructing film as a language. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. And he's using language to deconstruct films. So he's interested. You know, we talked last week about sorry week before about his title cards, intertitles, the use mm-hmm. of foregrounding language, text, you and know, context. text. Yeah, exactly. But the context he kind of misses in the UK, it's kind of adorable in a way, you know, to see, I guess it's a French werewolf in London almost. It's to see your culture, but he kind of, I think he misunderstands it. So there's a lot, you know, there, there was an interesting film he could have made. Uh, yeah. And I think there's there's another section of the film where we see a group of workers kind of talking about labour. Yeah. And some of them are kind of committed communists. Some of them, they're just talking about labour and work. And we can't really see necessarily always the speaker but again, it's kind of... That bit has some grace. That was the bit that kind of stands out. Yeah. But when you compare it against these other sections, the the, the naked woman walking back through the apartment, then there's a shot of just pretty much her vulva um, for, you know, a few minutes. I but, mean, she's hot, but it's like, it's like it's odd, you know? Like, I, don't what, I don't get the relationship between what, these like, things. It's it? like he's still stuck in this kind of 1960s, like... You know, just do it honestly, like in Breathless, where like Belmondo is like smacking Seaberg's bum. You know, like mm. that is honest. 
that's that's heterosexuality yeah we we, we love but to you, see the it. only the only thing but like, like in, if you're trying to be feminist and marxist like it's just odd it's just I like mean, if i saw if i saw a cock and balls as well it would make sense but it's just yeah equal opportunities yeah equal opportunities <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's weird it's 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 kind of a quite incomprehensible film there's there's some kind of anthropological and documentary interest um, to see a very, very super accomplished filmmaker make a film about UK production lines is yeah. kind of interesting. He flubbed it because he doesn't do anything interesting with it. Yeah. There's an interesting film to be made about a factory, which might lead us on to Two VBM, which is literally a film about a factory. Yes. Um, a film about a sausage factory. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Two VBM is, I think, the culmination of this period in a way. Um, not in a linear, linear sense, but it's it's the best representation. It kind of is. It's one of the last films he made. Yeah, right? that's true. But it, it, as as a film, it's kind in of it, it's a kind of a return a little bit to. Um, it's kind of a simmering down because we have identifiable protagonists, kind of Jane Fonda and her husband, who are a journalist and a filmmaker, ad- advertising filmmaker, who an ad man who turn up to a factory. The husband's accompanying Jane Fonda to do this interview with the factory manager about literally just about production in France. Like it's a, it's a puff piece for equivalent of the FT. Mm. Um, and the there is a strike, like I've at the factory, the boss of the factory is basically imprisoned uh, in his office. They're also kind of imprisoned as well. They're kind of kidnapped and chucked in this office. And we see the, uh, the, the, the strike kind of spool out, basically. It kind of runs amok. The workers are in charge of the factory. It's not sanctioned by the union so the union man turns up and he wants to close it down so there's a lot of interesting kind of antagonisms and and, and contradictions between class politics within the working class you know the the, the self-interest of the union to kind of play the status quo almost and the the revolutionary fervor of the workers the role of the journalist like the 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 fourth state mm. um the voice of the boss you know because we get a big monologue from the factory owner it's amazing uh He's, he's such a good role because he does this big monologue where he's just like, I must go to a dinner party. He's extremely French. Um, <laughs> the most most remarkable thing about this film, in some senses, is the, the, the set design and the production of the film. There's a literal cutaway of the factory, mm. which the camera doesn't kind of make enough of, really, but we, we it kind of pans and we see all the rooms stacked on top of each other, yeah. um, which is really remarkable it's fucking great uh, yeah cinematically too Fabian is streets mm, ahead I think yeah way 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 streets ahead um, and I also I, I mean I just want to shout out like I mean the bit of too Fabian I'll be able to speak most articulately about it because it was the only bit I wasn't staring at my phone <laughs> 100% was <laughs> um, um, the end the, the penultimate scene in the supermarket which is a tracking shot that kind of mm. goes across the, the till line of a, of a carrefour which is basically the French version of Tesco um, and gradually um, uh, shoppers are gathering around a man at a book stand who's uh, reading out a revolutionary text and yeah. the revolutionary text informs the shoppers that in fact property is a construction designed to oppress them and actually they could just jack everything in the shop good fucking steal and then they do that and then it's prudent basically and then the the cops turn up and there's a bit of a bit of a Mm -hmm. hoo-ha um bit of a fracas bit of a kerfuffle bit of an argy-bargy um and 
uh, that's beautiful as a piece, as a scene. As a, it's almost like a great short film. I mean, he would mm. never get the money to make something like that, and if he hadn't kind of established himself, and it's like a really beautiful bit of like high budget rebellion. Yeah. And mm. I think that's what these films kind of aim for constantly, and that's the only time that I feel they really yeah, achieve I didn't, it. I didn't buy the rebellions. We we see a lot of micro rebellions in. Um, we see a lot of utopias in um, Goddard. Uh, we see it in Perrault Faux where we have this kind of Robinson Crusoe mm. element where Perrault, not his real name, but, uh, you know, kind of Ferdinand. Like Ferdinand I can't really yeah. remember that. Amazing. Yeah, he has his, he has a monkey and a parrot and lives on the beach and reads books. Yeah. Uh, and we have in some of these other films, in, in Weekend, we have the cannibalistic revolutionaries. Um, oh yeah, that's my least favorite part of the week. Of yeah, the weakest part where is where it gets very utopia, like his later work, his yeah. mid work. But it's it's here. It's like this the su- the supermarket scene is the most kind of the best articulation of what he's trying to do there. This kind of free flowing, uh, rebellious um, kind of overspillings. We can't you know again he does all the things cinematically he wants to do, which he's not foregrounding any one particular character. We're seeing a tableau. Um, it's quite we're we're at a kind of middle distance, so it's hard to distinguish individual acts. It foregrounds cinema as cinema because we're aware of a camera on rails. It does all of that stuff without deconstructing to the point where they crumble, yeah. which is what he does in large parts, you know, Wind from the East and so on. He kind of hammers it too hard. Here he's really good, he's really informed. But obviously, at the same time, it wasn't Goddard filming this, it was Gorin, because Goddard had a motorbike, like, motorbike? A motorbike accident at the yeah. beginning of shooting, I so really. didn't actually direct most. So it's too bad. I'm not really a god off. It's not really a good. Should, should we be disregarding film. it? No, I think it. we should regard because he. I, still, I think he still obviously informed it to a, a large extent. But I think some of these decisions, I feel, were Goram mimicking Godar when he was good. Right. That's how I see it. Because the I supermarket be is a bit wrong. like the weekend traffic yeah, jam. Totally, it's the, tra- the traffic jam and weekend jam. Probably the most famous tracking shot in cinema history, maybe. But it. I feel like it's Goran kind of interpreting what Godard should have been doing in a way. Mm. Um, that might just be some pap, pop psychology, I don't know. But it, that, that is quite a compelling end. Jane Fonda is very magnetic in it, um, I think. She's a, there's a quite a good scene where she kind of, uh, her job is, a, she works for like the American News Network or something. Um, and she does her usual broadcast. Um, she says she has a 30 second segment and she gives this kind of quite self-reflexive criticism of her own role mm. and inability to tell the story of the workers in the factory um, but then it's not actually her real presentation she's just warming up um, there's a good scene where Jane Fonda is talking to some of the workers and they're talking about the difficulties of being a worker in France like about what the statistics actually mean for a working person they're talking about how difficult it is that uh, it's intersectional, right? It's like the woman talking about how hard it is. Like she wants to go on strike, but uh, uh, she can't because she's got childcare duties. But it's okay for her husband to go on strike. You yeah. know, he'll go on strike all the time, but you know she can't. And she talks about the difficulties of raising a child and being a worker, living on the breadline. There's some interesting bits where Godard is kind of very good politically and is actually fulfilling his need because it's a an identifiable worker character telling their story. But it's not shown in a hyper Hollywoodized way because we're still at the middle distance, or whatever. And we can't see the worker's face really. It's kind of in profile. He's very good there. He's kind of doing, you know, it's almost like he threw the baby out with the bathwater a bit, you know. But I, I wasn't swept up in '68, so maybe, you know, it was a necessary thing that he had to do. He had to. I think the '68 thing is just totally over overrated. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, it's part well, of the mythology at, of the '60s, isn't it? Like, it's like, 
I, I, it's a real warning against making like lockdown based art, you know, because mm. it's like hundred percent. It's like too late. You know, yeah. you might think this whatever thing is the top headline on the Guardian website right now is. I mean, it's even worse with like Trump or Brexit related art. You know, it's like the the, the yeah the NFT that sold. It was the most expensive NFT ever. It was just like a GIF of animated trump or something oh, yeah that God. kind of shit yeah I mean, I, the, 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 the meaningless shallow shit but it's yeah. like yeah like like making w work that's i mean it's fine to make work like i mean i've made video work that sort of comments on some of the kind of ex some of the collateral of of covid on our um on our personal lives um stuff to do with intimacy that's been kind of the case no. anyway before covid yeah. um but like stuff that's like resolutely headline topical yeah like i'm making a film i'm about making the an aboutness artwork. basically yeah the aboutness i'm making it an artwork about it man it fucks it you know i'm making an artwork about facebook taking our data yeah it's all about that data shit. it's like this is a, a you know a moment on the lips never on the hips exactly <laughs> very... but it's really that it's kind of it, it is yeah i think yeah the thing about 68 maybe i don't understand it well enough I mean, you've got We've most seen... of it's about crush, crushed ambition because you've got the Prague yeah, Spring, which totally. was crushed, you know, uh, 10 years before you've got the Hungarian uprising, another moment of kind of resurgence of, of, of political, sometimes quite reactionary um, uh, a movement in Hungary, which was crushed. You know, about but 68 was before. crushed. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about this because we like we started this podcast in um, a year ago, nearly. We're Almost coming up to our ago, year anniversary. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we did we we did this podcast. We started this podcast because we wanted to do a podcast anyway. But we started it kind of prompted by COVID. Like there's nothing like, sort of there was a gap in the uh, in our schedule to do it. Um, and you know, six months after, yeah, like the mo probably the most one of the most crushing <laughs> thinking of all the defeats one of the most <laughs> crushing defeats i mean there's a the student movement and then there's like the yeah, war in iraq i guess 11. which i was very young for but yeah like 2019 general election you know we did quite a lot of campaigning for corbyn's labor and it was it was brutal you know the how how that how um the conservatives triumphed in that election now i feel quite kind of ironic about it whatever i i you know i i don't i don't feel that attached to it all but at the time it was horrible and it felt like our future really wasn't being cared for and i think you know 68 there's a lot of chat about the kind of fervor and the excitement and the strike and all this stuff in 68 but there isn't very much chat about the fact that there was an election that year where the right triumphed mm. you know and none of these films really seem to acknowledge that or like grieve no. that or like they're they, all they, still in this state of like agitation agitation something must be done it was well, it's that shonashevsky um you know what is to be done it's yeah. the biggest it's, that was a question that was agitating chenashevsky in 19th century in russia you know mm. that was the most important question and he produced a bit of work a, a novel which trying to address that and it's fucking dog shit <laughs> and there's, there's a lesson for you but art you know, isn't for agitation art is no, for no, like honoring and grieving and understanding Absolutely. it's 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 works at a lower register yeah actually and i think one of the things yeah again 68 a lot of freedoms were won. you know the the I think culturally, more boundaries were pushed, you know, during the 60s, musically, cinematically, in literature. You know, there was a huge ground was made, actually. They were kind of more ground than people realised at the time. Um, so in a way, Goddard was 
actively doing something. He was kind of ploughing a furrow that he didn't realise he was. Whether that would be social change or political change, that didn't happen, but cultural change did um, in quite a big way. That's that's why we, we, again, talking about capitalism packaging, it's why Beatlemania or, you know, Liverpool's... Um, uh, you know, kind of like Liverpool's the city of the Beatles. It's 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 become a brand. This is the 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 branding exercise of neoliberalism. It it, it repackages, it reconstitutes, and it, it neuters mm. radical movements. Um, it's why, in a way, that like the idea of Gallic cool, the, the cinema of of Godard, the actual revolutionary cinema of Godard was the cinema of the sixties because that was a mm. lot more challenging and because it was more public and it was more accessible and it was more confrontational. Um, you know that that made ground and that you know culturally changed things i think yeah but this feels like a sort of gawky mismatch this feels mm. like goddard's cool cinema sponsored by marxism <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it feels artificially mm. inserted as a kind of bent but it's also vulnerable to all the same antagonisms that, you know we saw happen to say the student movement like yeah. fuck like 11 years ago mm. 10 11 years ago <coughs> Because their, you know, rivalries, factionalism, uh, lack of direction, uh, an agitation that was kind of ungrounded, um, you know, with, with Godard, Wind from the East, one of the big reasons why it's, uh, he is considered a Maoist, I was talking to you the other day, you know, why he's considered a Maoist filmmaker is because he didn't, there was a disagreement with the Communist Party in France who were pro-Russian, whereas the... Mm. True revolutionary stance was to be, as it were, pro-Maoist because the Russian revolution, as it were, had failed. It had been, it had been abandoned Which by mental, Stalin. Which is mental because wasn't Mao's China just <laughs> as brutal? As... <laughs> the, the cultural revolution was as, if not more brutal than you know Stalinism. But there was a the winds of change, as it were, the very winds he tried to dissect in the film mm. were influencing the film because you know there was again it was aboutism it had to be about Stalin yeah, it had to be yeah. about what happened to the revolution in Russia yeah there's so this whole like, bit in Wind from the East which is like a debate about a poster which shows Stalin and says mm, murderer yeah and again it just feels so like weirdly contemporary like not contemporary to now but like contemporary to then it just feels like watching a news broadcast from yeah, then yeah yeah it's like John like, Hold Smoke that's the problem with this, this aboutist work you know because he again in in we I know we didn't watch it watch it but uh, Vladimir and and Rosa yeah. is a film about the Chicago Seven. Get, get so to the Chicago mic. Eight. Sorry, yeah, I'm uh, leaning back in uh, comfort. Uh, <laughs> in Ralph wanted me to be uncomfortable. Was it anti comfortable? I just want fuck? you to be um, sounding good. Sounding for good for our, our beautiful sound good uh, listeners. Um, but he wrote Vladimir and Rosa is a film about it's a kind of sardonic retelling of the story of the the Chicago Seven, Chicago Eight, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, again, it just feels like a, a newsreel. You know, it's a series of provocative newsreels, as it were. Yeah. Um, and why is it called the Jigavertov Group? Like, why do they think that they're I, working in the tradition of Vertov? I don't know. I don't know if it's... Because there's not much Vertov here. No. Vertov is much more impressionistic mm-hmm. and, like... Yeah. And, like, pure cinema. Whereas this is, like, shoehorning some bollocks yeah. in. And 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 Vertov had a, had a, a feeling for grandeur, mm. which these films don't. And narrative, even if his narrative was cinema itself, you know, man with the movie camera, or the city of St. Petersburg, or, or Moscow. You know, he had a much kind of broader mm. aim. I don't I don't get the the Vertov 
Yeah, I don't understand. I think I think there is like somewhere if you chase it down, there is a writing by Virtual. I think that they're attaching to. Right. We could right. look it up. I don't know. We're not that kind of podcast. We don't do footnotes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I, I maybe again it was provocative. They were just saying, you know, because he was, as it were, the, the godfather of Soviet revolutionary yeah. cinema. I mean, arguably, it should be the Einstein. Well, Einstein, yeah, I was Eisenstein thinking Eisenstein group. would make more sense um, because Eisenstein was quite dogmatic in this mm. way and was but, making propaganda. But again, at the same time. Eisenstein was tarred by his association with his long-term association with uh, you know he continued making films for Stalin, um, yeah. even though it was you know he was trying to survive mm. um, and and course you know he he struggled to make films in his late career you know Bears in Meadow, failure, lucky he wasn't shot. Yeah. Um, Nevsky was a wild success. Ivan the Terrible first one. Did okay. Second I love one. how much you know about Russian cinema. It's like you're really, you've just suddenly gone into that mode. It's like that's all I care about. The only cinema is Russian cinema. But then you know, with with Eisenstein, I, I read there's a really interesting. Um, it's not apocryphal. There is a there is a uh, com- there is a conversation. So Eisenstein went after um, Ivan the f- uh, while they were trying to struggle to get Ivan the second through the censors and get it mm. edited in a way that Stalin approved of. Um, Eisenstein was called to a meeting at about midnight by Stalin mm-hmm. um, and Molotov. So he's there and he's gone to the halls of power. It's the cocktail fame. Cocktail fame, yeah. He's there at like midnight, which is a great, it's insane that he's, you know, start, the thing working at Stalin's mind at the time is I need to speak to Eisenstein now at midnight. Mm. And he goes and there's this uh, transcript of the conversation. It's really haranguing and it's a lot of Stalin going, I think this actor, he, 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 wasn't convinced by the guy that was playing Ivan because he felt like the character needs to be more powerful and more like him in a way. Um, Eisenstein's very, very quiet throughout. It's a really, really good. It's a be- beautiful. Um, it's a it's this kind of weird mo- monologue by Stalin, and Eisenstein doesn't really say much in this meeting. It lasts about twenty minutes, um, but he does say he's very uh, passive aggressive at one point, and he's 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 he does say sort of you know like well this is what you wanted <laughs> you know at one point it's the classic kind of any freelancer that's been in a room with well this is what you asked for <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, like, we're it's not going to do more than one back and forth on this <laughs> no 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 we've got two rounds of edits yeah um, but it's yeah it's anyway that's kind of a digression but yeah Eisenstein almost feels like the more obvious because Eisenstein did revolutionary narratives and had big you know he he filmed strikes in a factory it seems like the obvious like. Um, uh, seed for, you know, if you're going to make a film about a strike in a factory, yeah. why are you not referencing Eisenstein? <laughs> I don't yeah. get it. I, don't is get it. it. I think it is just kind of a, some level of delusion. And I think also just there's the han- hangover of the 60s, right? They they had they had kind of a great deal of difficulty dealing with that moment, that post-68 moment. Yeah. Um, so you see it as a crisis then? Yeah, I yeah. see. I see these films as like intense anxiety. Mm. They're like when they're not boring, they're anxious. Yeah, um, and I think that's the worst combination. <laughs> for a yeah. film. I really think these are some of the worst films I've ever seen. Definitely, oh, the, truly, definitely the worst films we've reviewed on this pod. And it would Absolutely. be interesting. We do have guests sometimes. It would be interesting to have someone on who likes them. Mm. Um, we haven't done that, but um, I mean. We like part. We like I elements. Of, yeah, part, George uh, said. George said he likes them, but yeah, I, generally people, I don't know, and people, and people who haven't seen them are excited about them because it's like, oh, you know, Mark's 
you assume the reason they haven't been talked about much is because they're Marxist and mm. and that that would mean you know that they would be marginalised by liberal film critics. But actually, they are just very. They are just really boring. And I'm a um, Marx. I, am I a Marxist? I don't like these labels. But like, I'm very left wing. I want. You, you're more. You're more of a Marxist, uh, Thatcherite, neoliberal. Um, of course. Away, um, think, you know. And um, <laughs> and uh, and and so and I I think these films are fucking awful. Fucking shit. I just don't. I don't think you. Yeah, it, it comes from a place of anxiety. It's a lashing out. I don't. This isn't the foundations for a meaningful revolutionary cinema. It didn't even deconstruct anything because he everything he does in these films he's already done. I mean, the the clearest articulation of it is this bit from Wallen's essay at the end where yeah. um, he says the early films tend to explore this kind of problem as one between different levels, but in the post nineteen sorry, that's decontextualized that extract. Um, in the post, very Godard, in the post nineteen sixty eight films, there seems to have been a kind of flattening out, so that fiction equals acting equals lying equals deception equals representation equals illusion equals mystification equals ideology. Now, this is this. There's a lot of flaws. Mm. I'm not going to go debating society on this, but like going from deception to representation, to illusion, to mystification, to ideology. There's a few problems there. Representation. We've talked on this cinema, on this podcast about representational cinema. We, yeah. when, on when did Manny Cowell, who's a really interesting Indian filmmaker who talks about the difference between representation and sort of presentation, like directly showing things rather than using images on screen as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, like he talks about Bresson and Ozu, how they just show things like, like when someone's... Um, taking a watch out of someone's pocket it's not a metaphor for something they're, they're taking a watch out of somebody's pocket exactly they yeah. are the, the pickpocket exactly it's yeah. a very kind of very you know literalism but I mean that's yeah. not it's so odd and, and, and disingenuous for God to suggest that he's somehow not um, doing representation um Goddard, like, because Bresson is not doing representation because Bresson is not making politically committed work. No. He's just making stories about someone escaping a prisoner of war camp or someone, mm-hmm. you know, having a yeah. fake bank account. And you bank don't go, this is, this is about the human condition yeah, yeah, from yeah. that. It's a bounty man. And that's, that's where they resonate, right? Because they're, you don't, you can read a lot into the Diary of a Country of Priest. You don't need to. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't need to. This is a, isolated it is crisis it is, completely and yeah. you're, so you're seeing it's not a metaphor so something. when you see him tremblingly you know soaking his bread in wine and eating it and that's the only food he can nourish you know a, a sim a sim adult or a simpleton might say you know this is about the lack of nourishment he's getting from his catholic faith mm. in provincial french society or something it's, no this is about a man who's just in crisis in yeah yeah it, crisis, it is it, it totally directly is what it is i suppose in i suppose in Godard's, i suppose in tuva bien you know some of the things you see are kind of um are quite sort of materially direct like the people yeah. storming the, the supermarket but Pretty still cool. they're not they're not transcendent cinematically in the way that Bresson oh. is so this idea that he's kind of avoiding representation and therefore avoiding illusion and mystification and therefore avoiding ideology is complete bollocks because they are just more soaked in ideology than any Hollywood film I've ever seen. Absolutely. And it's it's not even um you know They're a bit more bait about it, which it, is perhaps more honest and, and Yeah, it's better, more obvious. It, you know, in a way he's aware of that because he's like, you know, I can't escape that. I can't escape representation because I'm I'm a filmmaker and my job is representation. Moving, you know, twenty four frames a second. Mm-hmm. But you know, by using these dislocated, fragmented bits of the uh, 
of Marx and Engels and having kind of juddery statements made. You know, there's in, in, in Wind from the East, there's the cowboys sitting with the woman and they're eating soup from a bowl together and they're just saying revolutionary things. <laughs> and it's so fucking bait. It's just so bait. And he's like, the workers will rise up soaked in blood. And it, it, he then oh. says something kind of reactionary and then he addresses the camera. And it's like, if I was walking around like degree show at Goldsmiths and I saw this, I would laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at one of the greatest filmmakers ever to live doing this. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, come on. he made a lot of films. He made a gonna, lot of films. We're going to review more of them. Again. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before, 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 we, before we outro? Uh, I need to piss. Okay, cool. That's, That's good. I will let thought. you piss. Um, um, I don't. No, I, I, I don't. I, I didn't like these films. They're boring. I think they... I think he achieved the objective of these films in the 60s already. Yeah. He's already done this. He's done it all. He's done the, yeah, he's, yeah. he's created. Now a, he's trying too hard. Yeah. He's, I know Woolen's article is, um, we don't want to lean on Woolen's article too much because that's Woolen's uh, schema placed yeah. over Goddard's film. And it's Goddard's true. own explanation for what he's doing at the time is, is actually a lot more simple. Woolen also co-wrote the screenplay academic. for The Passenger by Antonioni. Really interesting. Facts. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's that's my feeling. There's a the schema we're implanting on it. I don't think Goddard was his actual justifications for what he's doing were much more urgent and much more immediate. There's a good conversation between him and Gorin, which was published in, funny enough, republished in Little White Lies. No, uh, yeah, um, like a, they they'd Fair located play. this interview or found a translation yeah. from a book and they put it. But that's the most accessible place to find it. And the way they talk about it is a lot less academically fringed than mm. Woolen talks about it yeah. but Woolen actually makes these films digestible for me yeah I think you if you want to yeah. watch these films I mean we wouldn't advise it <laughs> um, if you want to watch these films you should read the Peter Wallen essay which is called Godard and Counter Cinema Vendette Went from mm. the East um, next sure. week we will be reviewing Michael Snow with special guests Igor Taroni Lalic and Daniel Niafitu Clash of the Titans uh-huh. former former guests on this show um, both but never united in never one together room. until next week um, if, the, if, if we don't have any fracas um before we know we know we know who ralph's addressing there so if you're listening <laughs> out there um you you toiling masses keep it in check keep it in your pants right? um and and we will be reviewing the next era we're going to do a four-parter on godard now not a three-parter <laughs> yes. because we realized that the marxist films needed their own space to be ranted against before mm. we deal with the 80s and 90s Had where we'll be reviewing uh probably prenom carmen hail mary and maybe something else and then we've got another final fourth where we'll be looking at image book film socialism and some probably goodbye to language maybe goodbye to language yes we'll be having Daniel back on the pod for that but that is probably a long way away because we're getting a bit tired of Godard and we're thinking of other things we want to review (laughs) (laughs) we will be reviewing Altman with a special guest in a few weeks I believe Um, and we also might just review Whit Stillman, and we also might just have a special year, one year anniversary MoveTube episode with yes. an undisclosed cadre. We will have, we will be cleaning up for that, and we'll have like a, uh, yeah, our anniversary party. Um, more to be announced about that, but it's going to be a special episode. It's going to digress in Godarian style. 
Godardian? Godardian. 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 I, 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 I don't know, know if that's how you say it. That sounds more appropriate. In Godardian style, we'll be digressing from the usual formula for that slightly. And maybe forever, maybe we'll just become like a, one of those podcasts where it's just some guys talking. In, in accents. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the, the grounding of a, of a film review is probably good. We're just coming yeah. up to an hour. Thank you so much for listening, listeners. Yeah, Peace out. We're going to order some pizza. Hands, face, space. <laughs>